The people's flag is FIFA shred. It's shrouded off the mass of day. The government needs to take over more aspects of our private industry. Scares the heck out of me. That does put us on the road towards a more socialist agenda. And that's not what America is made of. And that is not where we should be headed. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today is Friday, September 17th. That was Sarah Palin, you heard at the top of the podcast, speaking at this summer's Tea Party convention. On the show today, we evaluate Sarah Palin's fears. Is America really moving toward a more socialist agenda? And what the heck would a socialist agenda look like anyway? But first, as always, the patented, trademarked, registered Planet Money Indicator with our very own Jacob Julius Goldstein. Today's Planet Money Indicator... 0.9%. That's how much core inflation rose in the past year, according to figures the government put out this morning. You know, I noticed that because I bought a pair of socks yesterday and they were $10.09. A year ago, they'd just been $10. I felt kind of ripped off. You know, David, I'm always impressed with what a perceptive consumer you are. (laughs) Doubtless, you also noticed that between July and August, prices actually didn't rise at all. So, So a pair of socks or whatever would have been the exact same price between July and August because core inflation month to month was zero. Now, some people out there might think, woohoo, prices didn't go up. But zero is awfully close to negative. And this brings up the dreaded deflationary spiral, which we've talked about a lot on the podcast. Basically, that this is an economist's nightmare. When prices start falling, it tends to have a uh, reinforcing effect where people don't buy things because they figure, well, it'll be cheaper next month, and then it'll be cheaper the month after that and the month after that. Factories tend not to invest because why spend a million dollars building a factory if your product is just going to be sold for cheaper and cheaper and cheaper? In fact... Most economists say it's probably better to have a little inflation, not a lot, but a little, because that kind of gives the economy some juice. It gives everyone an encouragement not to just let money stick around. So this wasn't negative. We're not in a deflationary spiral, but we're as close as can be without being in one. And that's got to make people nervous. I don't know. I'm thinking I may wait to buy my next pair of socks till the price goes down to $9.99. I'll give you a penny, Keston Brown, to keep us out of a deflationary spiral. Deal? Give it to me. I don't have it on me right now, but I have a penny somewhere. I'll give it to you later. You know, this is interesting because this is what the Federal Reserve has been doing. They've been pouring money into the economy, trying to get people to keep buying stuff so that we don't fall into a deflationary spiral. But still, inflation is not as high as the Fed would like to see it. Most people say the Fed wants to see inflation somewhere around 2%. We're clearly below that. And there's talk now that the Fed might take some more bold steps this fall to to prop up inflation, uh, maybe by buying lots of treasury bonds. We will monitor that obsessively, won't we, Jacob? Obsessively. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. On with the big show. David, I've had a very exciting few days. I have spent much of it watching videos of people calling President Barack Obama, Nancy Pelosi, and other Democrats socialists. Google it. There's a lot of those videos out there. It's probably not too surprising. A particular favorite of Fox News, and it's a regular feature on Tea Party rallies. Newt Gingrich does it. Lots and lots of Republicans are saying this election is a vote between socialism and free market. Yeah, those are fighting words. I've actually always seen this as a vote between mercantilism and communitarianism. No, David, it's not 1703 or whatever. (laughs) Uh, That was last relevant. Um, So, look, 
I think we can just come out and say and maintain our journalistic credibility. President Obama is not a socialist. Neither is Nancy Pelosi. Neither is any leading Democrat. In fact, other than Bernie Sanders, the senator from Vermont, I don't think there are any actual avowed socialists in any national office right now. All right, man. You're going out on a limb there. I am. I'm also going to go even further out on that limb. There are very few Republicans who are truly free market libertarians. Why are you cluttering up my mind with complicated nuance? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look, here's the point. There is no Democratic economics. There's no Republican economics. These are huge parties with lots and lots of people with lots and lots of interests and agendas. And as far as I can tell, most politicians, like most people in America, have not spent a lot of time trying to identify what is my core economic philosophy. You know, they have interests, they have core, you know, gut sense beliefs, but they don't have a real economic philosophy. You can put a name on it. But we thought, you know what, we're Planet Money. We can spend the time to really look into economic philosophies. And so this week and next, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look into what is socialism, what is a socialist, and what is a libertarian? What's libertarianism? So today, socialism, Adam, you spoke with a real, live, actual American Marxist socialist. That's right. Richard Wolf. He's professor emeritus of economics at University of Massachusetts. And I started off by asking him this question. Is this November's election actually a face-off between socialism and free market economics? It couldn't really be further from such a thing. It strikes me as a testimony to the to a legacy of the Cold War. I mean, here in the United States, perhaps more than anywhere in the world, Uh, Socialism, communism, Marxism uh, were banished, in a sense, from polite conversation, from being taken seriously, other than as an an amorphous threat to everything anyone believes in. And that meant we have now about two generations worth of people who never really engaged that topic, who didn't think about it, who didn't read up on it. It produces both an inability to understand what socialism is, a gut-level rejection and hostility to it, but most of all, an immense and deep lack of awareness. All right. So let's dig into the economics a bit. And and as you've told me many times, you are a classically trained economist, which means to say you are trained in the capitalist tradition and, in, in, you know, Adam Smith and his heirs. Somehow you deviated along the way and became, I think, the, the term these days is a heterodox economist. That's the popular term these days. Yes. You, you, We're not orthodox. You're not orthodox. <laughs> yeah. So th- let, let's start with uh, President Obama. And let's start with healthcare because that's where this discussion began in, in our country recently, as far as I can tell. President Obama has a healthcare plan. It, it was not as aggressive as I think he originally planned, um, but it you know, does seem to have the government play a more active role in our healthcare system, arguably, than it had before. Is that a socialist plan? What was passed has nothing remotely to do with a socialist plan. You might call it a socialist plan, at least in the old definition of socialism, if doctors were public employees hired by the government as a kind of public service, a little bit like groundskeepers in a park or policemen and women and so forth. We don't have that. And nothing in the Obama program proposed it. 
The second way you might imagine an old-style socialist health program is if the government took over the basic job of insuring our health. So it might leave the doctors private, but it would be a government insurance program paid for out of public funds to provide everyone with a guarantee of access to health care. And nothing like that was proposed or passed by the Obama administration. They barely discussed it early in the debate, and it fell away uh, halfway through. So there is nothing that I can see that makes this program socialist. So explain to me, and, and if you could go through a bit of the economic thinking, sort of a broad, generic socialist approach to thinking through the problem of health care. The word socialism has as its core the word social. And the idea here has always been, from the earliest days, that there is a social dimension to everyone's private decisions. So, for example, if we're not going to have a social program of health, if we leave it to the private, then we have the following anomaly. A private person decides privately not to avail himself or herself of health care. Okay, they become sick. But the problem in our world is if I'm sick and I go on the subway or I go on the train or I go to school with my child, I make other people sick. We depend on each other. We're woven together. And we cannot pretend that the private decision we each make doesn't have a whole raft of social consequences. And once we admit that it does, then there needs to be a social accountability, a social responsibility that is woven into how we manage this. How is that different? I mean, I, I think the way a more classical, orthodox, if you will, economist would 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 describe that is is, is to say healthcare choices have private dimensions and they have what economists call negative externalities. That that when I make a private decision, I am not having to pay for the impact my decision has on you and other people. But within capitalism, not going to socialism, within capitalism, there are a variety of mechanisms to capture that external cost. How is what you're describing fundamentally different than than a, a more traditional capitalist economic approach to this problem? In my judgment, having gone through all of the literature of externalities that you're referring to, which is a big literature in economics, I don't understand anyone ever having de demonstrated the ability to capture all of those things. The reason is they're infinite. How do you capture the impact of my not going to a doctor, to stay with our example, and becoming ill in one way or another, and then infecting how many people? We don't really know. With how many consequences on those people and still others? We don't really know. The notion that we have a mechanism to capture this sort of thing is a fantasy. There is no such mechanism. Okay. So, so if we want to understand how socialism is different from capitalism, is it a tweak on capitalism or is it a fundamentally different approach to the world? And I'm getting the sense you're saying, no, no, it is a fundamentally different approach to Absolutely. the world. Absolutely. Let me give another example that may get to the core of it. We organize production in a peculiar way in a capitalist society. A tiny number of people, in most enterprises, this is called the board of directors, 15 to 20 people, make all the basic decisions, how to produce, where to produce, when to produce, what to produce, and so on, and most important, what to do with whatever profits are generated in the enterprise. Into the workplace come hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who come in and do the work. They do not participate, nor do they have any influence over the what, how, where, and what is done with the profits. In a socialist arrangement, the basic idea would be that the workers whose interests and needs and risks and lives are wrapped up in this have a say 
participate democratically in the basic decisions they have to live with. We don't arrange it that way. And I would argue that many of the problems of modern capitalism, including the current crisis we're in, have to do with the conflict of interests embedded in the core of our production system that comes from this peculiar way of organizing production in which the mass of people have little or no say and a tiny number of people have all the say and therefore make decisions that may be good for them, but as we are now living through it, are not good for most of us. Now, you touched on the banking issues. I, I would love your how you as a socialist think through this banking crisis and, and just to do a, a gross distortion of, of the rest of capitalist-oriented economists, which we can both agree is the vast majority of economists in America. Certainly. You know, I'd, I'd say that the debate kind of centers on um, regulation, that that it, for lack of better terminology, left-of-center economists would say there was, a, there was too little regulation, and right-of-center economists would say regulation distorted the natural uh, movement of capital in such a way as to enrich and overly leverage a small number of banks. So basically, we had too little regulation or we had too much regulation. That's a gross distortion. It's much more complicated than that. Are you in continuum with the with the left? Just, yeah, we didn't have enough regulation, but you'd go a bit farther and say, let's have a lot more regulation? Or would you fundamentally organize the movement of capital? The first, I am not on the left end of the continuum. I am in favor of a fundamental different approach. I don't think the issue of this crisis was more versus less regulation, and I don't think the solution will be more rather than less regulation, or to be more correct, re-regulation. Every time capitalism has had an economic downturn, and particularly when the downturn has been severe, for example, the 1930s, the last big one, and now this one, and the one in the mid-70s, and so on, every single time the regulations have been imposed, either the private banking uh, institutions have evaded, weakened, or overthrown the regulations, or the government has managed to either inadequately or not at all enforce them. So long as you create an adversarial relationship between the private interests of a private bank trying to make money in a competitive environment, struggling with other banks, which is the normal capitalist arrangement, then every time regulations are imposed, the regulations become an obstacle for the maximization of profits by the banks. So they do what, in a sense, they're called upon to do. They find ways of getting around it. They find ways of weakening the regulation, of, of overturning the regulation politically, legally, if possible, illegally when they're not supposed to, and etc., etc. So I would argue, as a socialist, as a Marxist theorist, that the problem lies in this adversarial relationship, and that if banks had a different role in society, if they really conform to what we teach in the textbooks, that their job is to take uh, unproductive capital sitting and gather it and make it productive, then, then we ought to have an institutional arrangement which makes that the function. And that means questioning capitalism as the way we organize enterprises. And that's what in this society is the unspeakable. And so I don't think we're going to solve this crisis. Uh, let me... Again, cast myself in the unlikely and unreasonable role of defending capitalism. Uh, the proof or the evidence that, that many capitalists use is for the vast – for most of human history, from basically whenever human beings began until around when Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, uh, life was you know nasty, brutish, and short – 
life a hundred years in any direction wasn't much different. Life a thousand years in either direction wasn't much different. Most people lived miserable lives of drudgery. Um, And then starting around 1800, at least in developed countries, you just see this incredible spike. And whether you want to count it by GDP per capita or years lived or calories consumed or um, general health, life has gotten Far, far, far better in material terms for um, uh, for the vast majority of people to the degree that they lived in capitalist systems, and uh, and and so the argument would be yes, with capitalism you have an inequality, yes, with capitalism you have booms and you have busts, but the poorest person in a capitalist society is still far richer than the richest person was 300 years ago before capitalism started. And so um, for us to get rid of capitalism means to doom society to, you know, to the plight of much of Eastern Europe, to the plight of, um, you know, of, of much of sub-Saharan Africa, to, to the plight of lack of growth or negative growth and, and miserable human material conditions. It would only make sense to argue the way you do if what changed in people's lives was the conditions of their eating and drinking and wearing clothes, but not their appetites for the kind of life and the relationship with other people that they also wanted to live. That doesn't work that way. The people in a modern society have needs and wants that are appropriate to that modern society, and the way to judge that society is the degree to which it can meet the very needs and wants it itself generates. We believe in this society that people want to be free, that they want to have some control over the flow of their lives, that they want to participate, to use an old phrase, in the decisions that affect them and not simply be the receivers and takers of decisions made by other people. That may be a modern appetite, but it's real and it's profound, and capitalism deserves some credit for putting that appetite in people's minds, just as it deserves some criticism for being unable to feed the appetite it creates. A modern capitalist system cannot give the democracy in the workplace that it promotes everywhere else. So let's pretend for a minute this coming election in November is a election between socialism and capitalism. And let's pretend that socialism wins, that socialism wins in a landslide, that our president, our Congress are firmly socialist. Paint a picture for me, I guess, would we have to say five years, 10 years down the road once they've had a chance to implement um, their reforms? What, what, does, what is my life like? What is, what is the average American's life like in that new world? Well, I think um, if I had my druthers, I would have to have a short-term and a long-term set of proposals or things that I would do. In the short-term, yeah, I would take a, a, a page not only from older socialisms, but even from older American politicians like Franklin Roosevelt. One of the first things I would do is do what FDR did. I'd go on the radio and television and I would say, if the private sector of the United States is unable or unwilling to provide work for able-bodied adults who want to work, then there is no option but to have the government do it. The government has already tried for three years to provide unending incentives to private enterprise to do it by buying things, by infrastructure rebuilding and a thousand other programs. It didn't work. And so I'd have another WPA where we hire all the artists and provide culture to Americans. We build national parks. We do all the useful social things that we ought to do. I think the government ought to not only put people to work, but put them to work in a different social organization of production. And here's where the socialism comes in. 
If I were doing it, I would create ways in which groups of workers, with the help of churches, of academics, of all kinds of institutions, would set up enterprises in which the workers themselves were given their democratic rights to make the decisions, to participate democratically in deciding what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the profits that are generated. In order to give Americans, for the first time, a chance to see what a different socialist organization, cooperative organization, if you like, of production, what that's like as a work experience, what it produces in the way of output, so that a real choice could begin to happen. And I think it would give a socialist enterprise the opportunity to compete with a capitalist enterprise. And I have more than enough faith in the American people that I will go with how they decide between these two institutional arrangements. So... Okay, so so there would be these. No, these exist, right? I mean, there are. I know. I live in Brooklyn. There's the Park Slope Food Co-op, and uh, I, I once belonged to a food co-op in Chicago. There's there's other cooperative collective organizations. They're not, as far as I can tell, sweeping the nation. So so can we say that this competition has already taken place and capitalism has has won? No, this is not a level playing field. The access of a large business, for example, to finance is completely different from the access of a small. We see that in America today. So, in fact, if you don't have a level playing field, then we can't measure what exists as though it were a measure of who wins the competition. So it would be in taxes, in financing, in in government subsidies, supports. supports, supports. At the very least, give cooperatives the the same degree of benefits. And then let's see. Let's see. I would imagine that workers who were part of the decision-making of an enterprise will work better, will work harder, will work longer, will give themselves. Look, capitalism was born in the end when people were no longer willing to live in the feudalism or the other systems that preceded it. What capitalism is delivering right now is a catastrophic crisis. This is a system that is bringing untold unemployment in this country, huge numbers of foreclosures, people are losing their houses, everyone has a sense of their job being infinitely more insecure than it was before, and I think you're going to see that the notion of capitalism as a deliverer of the goods is getting itself into a deeper and deeper problem, and indeed in the United States, the teabaggers, if there's anything motivating them, it's a deep sense that what was promised to them by a capitalist America isn't being delivered, and they're casting about for the scapegoat to blame. All right. Jacob is putting up on the blog a reading list of Richard Wolff's work and other writings that might help you understand socialism more. I think it was pretty clear that Richard Wolff is no fan of the Democratic Party and sees this election as not at all a vote between socialism and free market capitalism. Next week, we will hear from some libertarians. Spoiler alert, they are not big fans of the Republican Party. And just a reminder, we're still looking for your help for our ceremonial memorial podcast for Toxie next week. How do you think she should be remembered? What would you say at her funeral? You can call a special hotline we've set up, 202 208-1271. That's 202-408-1271. We have links to Toxie Stories and a live webcam of her final days, npr.org slash toxic. You can also email us your thoughts and views at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening. It waves above the infant night when Mollahan in darkest night. It witnessed many its eaten vow. We mustn't change its color now. Raising scarlet standing high, in its falls will never die. 
those cowards flinch and traitor sneer will keep the red flag flying here.